Okay, the first reading today is found in uh, the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading chapter 4, and that's found on page 1,239 in the Bibles that you got handed as you came in this morning. So, here we go. Chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne there were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like a lox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings that were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they say, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Continuing with um, Revelation 5. Then I, saw a, a, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. 
The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the heaven and on sea and all that is in them saying, To whom him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Anne, and my welcome to Tim. Good to see you here this morning. My name is John, and uh, some uh, visitors among us as well. So you've landed, we're just sort of getting into a series in this wonderful last book in the Bible, God's last word to us uh, from Revelation. Um, uh, obviously, Timothy is having a hard time understanding it because he, he got online and sent away for these picture books on Revelation, uh, which I thought I'd show us. It's just one person's attempt to um, put this amazing last book into picture. Uh, as I've suggested the last couple of weeks, Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's more of a picture book. Uh, God showing us uh, how it is that Jesus really does fulfill uh, every plan and purpose of God, every promise that God has ever, ever made. Uh, and look, some of the pictures are pretty, um, yeah, they're good. They're uh, just to capture something of uh, uh, what John may have seen. Uh, and he's got um, scripts and uh, references there as well. So the book of Revelation, uh, and uh, you can just get it online. How much, Tim? 20 bucks. 20 bucks. Um, something to read through with, you know, with your family, your grandkids, uh, whatever. So, uh, But of course, God's word comes to us uh, with words, which we're going to... Uh, look at these wonderful chapters four and five uh, this week. People have been asking me, what sort of a week have you had, John? And I said, well, how can you not have had a good week hanging out in these two chapters? So uh, some of the richest uh, chapters about God. But I wanted to uh, get us into the book by showing you a picture and asking you if have a go if, if you think you know where this is. Maybe if we just dim the lights just on the stage might be helpful. Is anyone, it's, uh, it is in Australia. Anyone? Want to have it as a guess? What's that, sorry? Tom Wright. No? That's all right. It's, so this is up near uh, Wyndham, near uh, Kununurra, uh, or Lake Argyle. This is the Argyle Diamond Mine. Has anyone ever been there? Um, got to fly over there with uh, a mate of my dad's a few months ago. And what struck me about Northern Territory and everything that's going on up there, it's just big. <laughs> like, it's just huge. Um, and what you've got there is you've got a middle of an extinct volcano that's been mined out um, for diamonds. 
and you can see the township on the side down the bottom uh, on the left we tried to capture the airstrip there's a massive runway massive airstrip they fly the workers in and out they fly the diamonds in and out as well no one ever knows when the plane is leaving with the diamonds um, uh, the black stuff is what's the volcanic stuff and it's the pink stuff the pink diamond uh, is what they're looking for and the reason I start with this is because the airplane pilot who flew us over in this little um, uh, seaplane uh, told us some amazing stories and he, he said that, um, that the runway of this mine is called the diamond runway because it was one of the first things they built when they started mining the, um, the volcano and they hadn't quite got their processes worked out and they only realised some years later that there were tens of millions of dollars of pink diamond actually in this runway uh, and so the plan is is when this mine um, has been mined out by about 2020 the last thing they're going to do is come and pull the runway up um, uh, for the pink diamonds but it just reminded me we, we live our lives on tarmac don't we on black tarmac on Asheville we walk it we drive it um, sort of a metaphor for life and part of what Revelation is doing here that to the naked eye as we get on and live our lives from day to day the stresses the strains the just the mess going on around us you know the natural disasters the storms the things that we keep seeing and hearing people doing to one another uh, the horrible things um, you know the failed attempts at trying to find a better life through you know political movements and regimes that come and go and uh, and then there's of course just the ordinary everyday sort of coughs and colds disease and death and those sorts of things that it's a bit like you know everywhere you look in our city you just see this sort of black tarmac everywhere um, and what revelation is it's a word from God from heaven uh, to let us know that there's actually more going on uh, like the diamonds hidden in this 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 runway uh, revelation is, is like those diamonds it's God letting us know uh, something of reality the things going on in heaven uh, and what God is doing in the world and uh, that we might know uh, the goodness the goodness of life as well and to be a Christian uh, is to be a little bit like a shareholder you know in the Argyle diamond mine um, and I don't know if you, you know but this is a, this is the first of 60 sites that this company have got they're going to mine one after the other they've taken about 30 years to mine this one um, so you do the math but that's a bit like what you know being a Christian uh, we are shareholders uh, in the greatest treasure that we can be shareholders in. Uh, Revelation, and particularly these chapters, chapters 4 and 5, it's like stepping into the control tower of, you know, the world's biggest airports, Bangkok, Heathrow, uh, where, you know, you, you just, to look at it again, it just looks like random chaos going on with planes and people and bags going everywhere. You go up into, into the control tower of the airport, um, and you see, oh, there's actually a purpose, there's a plan, um, there's order. Uh, and what's happening here is Jesus is taking John, and through John, taking us uh, into the heart of the universe, uh, to the control centre of the universe, to the very throne room of God, that we might uh, see and understand who God is and his purposes and plans in history and what it means for us in the ordinary day-to-day uh, -day of life uh, and I want to suggest that here in these chapters um, is the counter argument uh, for the atheist uh, here is the certainty the assurance for the agnostic uh, here's the comfort uh, for the Christian uh, for the doubter to, to, to endure uh, here is the motivation for those of us who maybe 
are just feeling worn out. Feel like we've been serving the Lord, slogging it out in a local church like this for years. Uh, you know, it's feeling like, you know, yep, time to step back, let, let someone else have a go. Um, for those who need, you know, to find that encouragement uh, to keep going again. And so the first thing we do is, I've got a uh, bit of an outline there, is uh, John sees God on his throne. Just have a look with me as we just get back into uh, chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. Uh, the first thing I want to suggest that um, we're being reminded of here is uh, we meet a personal God, a personal God who wants to be known. This door is opened uh, by Jesus. Uh, John is in the Spirit. It's a reminder that we need all of God, the Father, Son and Spirit involved if we're to know God truly. Uh, it teaches us that not only does God want to be known, that he can be known we can come into his presence john hears a voice with authority it's the same voice that spoke to him addressed him in chapter one uh, the same voice that he then saw this amazing vision uh, in chapter one uh, as well where john fell down as if dead this voice commands john come up here come up here uh, he's commanded to come up and pay attention to behold what jesus is about to show him and the suggestion is that, um, again, it is a command uh, that for believers, for us this morning, uh, we should pay attention. John sees a throne. And on the throne, he sees not a something, not a force, but a someone. John sees a someone. Now, the details of this someone, this God, who is a personal God, they're not described. Of course, Everywhere in scripture, such is the greatness and the glory of God. Uh, he always will exceed uh, our grasp and our ability to know him um, completely and fully as he is. But the voice, the door, the command of someone on thrones heaven reminds us what is so unique and so beautiful about the God that we meet in the Bible, about Christianity. And it's just that God is a God of relationship. A God's a personal God who stoops that we might know him and to find a meaning and purpose in life. So while awesome in majesty, God is personal, God is a communicating God, he's a relational God who wants to be known by his creatures and does everything necessary, everything possible so that ordinary people like you and I, everywhere on the planet, can know our maker, can be loved and can enjoy our maker. And so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing John sees is a personal God who is sovereign. Sovereign. Now, sovereign just means that um, God rules his place, his rules, his people. Um, God is on his throne. Uh, that's the key truth of this whole chapter. Um, more than 11 times just in chapter 4, the word throne appears. Chapter 4 is about God who is on his throne. The word throne occurs more than 40 times in the book of Revelation. Um, and if you go back and have a look, you'll see that everything that John sees in chapter 4 is either coming from the throne, before the throne, around the throne, or next to the throne. 
And what does that mean? Well, quite simply, all of reality takes its measure from this throne. Biblical Christianity is about this God who rules the world, who is on his throne and cannot be budged off of his throne. Things change and move around this throne. This throne, the one on it, is unchanging, he's immovable. Things are always changing in our lives and in the world. The one thing that does not change is this God and who he is and that he is on his throne. Of course, there are all sorts of thrones in the world. Um, Alex Heavily uh, put me onto this one. I think she's keen for um, her other half to actually take her to experience this throne. Um, this is an 18 karat gold toilet. It's crazy. The whole, uh, I, I put this up because, of course, you know, for an Aussie, that's what a throne is for Aussie, isn't it? You know, love, I'm on the throne. Don't interrupt me. Um, you know, we, we know how it works. So anyway, someone got the idea to make a whole working toilet out of gold. Um, it's in the, um, uh, the Guggenheim Museum. You'll notice it's set up in a bathroom and it's called working art. That is, if you go to the museum and pay your entrance fee, you can go and sit on this throne and use it for what it's meant to be used for. Um, just goes, thrones have a purpose. Uh, God's throne have a purpose. Now, um, from what I've read, I understand this is quite a valuable throne. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but it's nothing when we compare to the value of God's throne. Every other throne on the planet can be shaken or flushed, but not God's throne. Immovable, irrevocably permanent, stable and secure. No more safer and secure place for a human being to live their life than before the God who is on this throne. The third thing John sees is a personal God who is just so awesome in his majesty, so awesome. The jasper, the carnelian, the emerald, the rainbow, um, that they paint a picture uh, of splendor, of majesty and awe that far exceeds any human throne. And of course, uh, especially in John's writing, uh, we meet a God who is light, in whom is no darkness. God is light, uh, unapproachable in holiness, rich in, uh, in mercy, perfect in justice. How fitting God's throne displays uh, you know, beautiful, brilliant, dazzling light uh, to capture and communicate something of his awesome majesty, his glory. The fourth thing John sees is a personal God who has all authority, all authority. Uh, we notice that God's throne is surrounded by 24 other thrones. Um, and uh, from the, a couple of places we could go into the Old Testament about this, but it's uh, the suggestion is that these 24 thrones represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles uh, of Christ in the New Testament. And if you like, what we have here is a visual summary of the complete history of God's history, of the complete history of humanity. All of God's purposes, he worked them out with his Old Testament people. And now all of God's purposes that are being fulfilled and accomplished and work, worked out uh, in Christ and his new people in the New Testament. Uh, it's a picture of God's plans in eternity being steadily and faithfully worked out. And they all reinforce one truth. Uh, even these thrones take their value, uh, their worth and their purpose, their presence uh, from God's throne who is in the centre. God rules uh, and despite appearances, 
um, we can actually trust this God that he's actually remains very much in control in history, uh, that there are plans and purposes and orders. Uh, he's always been worked out in what seems like the randomness and the chaos of our world. The fifth thing that John sees is a personal God who is not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. And from the moment God began to reveal himself in, uh, to his Old Testament people, he revealed himself as the God who is holy, who is holy. And because of his holiness, it is dangerous for us, for this holy God, to come into our presence. That's really the story of scripture, is how can a holy God come and live with unholy creatures? How can we exist together without his creatures being utterly destroyed? And of course, everything in the, in the scriptures is about God doing everything necessary to make it possible uh, for people to live in the presence of this God who is holy, holy, holy. The flashes of lightning, the rumblings of thunder, where do they take us? Take us back to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, where we have God's people told not to come near the mountain. They're trembling in fear. Um, because to come and put, you know, step onto this mountain and you'll be wiped out. They need a mediator. They tell Moses, Moses, you go. You go up and talk to this God. We're not going anywhere near him. Uh, the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit in the perfection of his attributes. We can read about that in places like Isaiah chapter 9 or Zechariah chapter 4. This is the same Holy Spirit who came down upon Jesus. Uh, so we could visually see that all of God, Jesus is fully equipped, fully equipped uh, to carry out his mission as the servant of God. The sea of glass brings together a number of different threads from the Old and New Testament. Again, just communicating, I think, the complete otherness of God, the perfection uh, of God, uh, the absoluteness of God's victory. Uh, we're told there's four living creatures singing of God's holiness. Why four? In the book of Revelation, uh, the number four seems to be the number uh, that God uses to symbolically represent nature. Uh, and so we have the four corners of the earth. We have the four winds in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, we've got the four uh, beasts here. Um, reminder that everything visible and invisible uh, only exists uh, because God wills it to exist. And God has created it to exist. And, it, and, it, and God sustains things uh, as, as they are. But why the face of a lion, an ox, a man and an eagle? Uh, again, symbolically captures something of the, the glory of God, the strength, the majesty, uh, the power, the grace uh, of, of God uh, in his glory. Um, that they're full of eyes, front and back, remind us, of course, that God is all-knowing, he's all-seeing. Um, there's sort of the, the, the the sort of the big words, they're called the omni-words, sort of omniscient and omnipotent and uh, just means all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful. Uh, that's who this God is on his throne. But these four beasts, they're praising God uh, that as representations of all the creatures uh, of the planet. They just remind us that, uh, that God's design and destiny for all creatures, uh, for man and for beast, uh, is to join in the praise of this God who is holy. There's no one more worthy of our worship uh, than this God. That's the point of verses 9 and 11. Uh, 
And so we see that the living creatures, verse 9, uh, they give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Verse 10, you have the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne. Uh, they lay their crowns before the throne. Uh, this is a picture, isn't it, of a complete humbling. Uh, laying everything, whatever authority, whatever we have, recognising that it is only by the gift of this God on his throne and how right and proper uh, that we lay everything in his service in honour and praise of him. And so they say, and in fact, let's say these words together. I've got them up here. Um, let's say these words together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Uh, this is the reality in heaven. And of course, sadly, it is not the reality here on earth. Uh, the amazing thing that happens in the New Testament is monotheistic Jews, so people who've grown up worshipping Yahweh, worshipping one God. Uh, there's a hymn in the New Testament in Colossians that is almost this hymn, word for word, ascribed to Jesus. The monotheistic Jews worshipping Jesus as God. Uh, it was uh, really the anathema, the thing that, that caused a whole lot of Jewish people uh, to not believe Jesus was the Messiah, and that's why he ended up on the cross. Um, and that's the amazing claim uh, that Jesus makes. But this reality in heaven, of course, is not the reality on earth. It's a little bit different. To be giving all honour and all glory and all thanks always to this God, uh, it's not our natural reflex. Left to our own devices, it's not actually how we posture ourselves. Uh, recently, Gita and I had the privilege of attending um, uh, a 21st of some friends, and it was great to be there we were with old friends. These parents were instrumental in me actually becoming a Christian 24 years ago. They prayed for me, they led the, the Bible study group I ended up becoming a part of, and ended up joining when I became a Christian. And uh, in the speeches from friends and parents, and, and, and the 20, the, the, their daughter turning 20, 21 herself, Look, many appropriate things were said to honour her. Um, she, she really is uh, a wonderful um, young woman. Um, but for me, there was sort of a, a, a little bit of a surprise, and I guess a sadness, in that um, these, these people, who I still churchgoers, still believe, um, that it wasn't their natural reflex just to want to acknowledge and thank God at any point. During these speeches, you have family, you have friends, people flown in who've been a part of their lives. And um, I mention it because this is not an unusual thing that I experience when I go to occasions like this with Christians and I have an opportunity uh, to do the natural thing is just to give thanks to God, uh, just to acknowledge God uh, in front of family and friends. Now, they may have had good reasons, wise reasons, in caring for the sensitivities of where they you know, daughter was at and their, you know, faith and stuff like that. Um, but still, um, I was sad uh, that their God, the God who I know they believe in and pray to, wasn't thanked or acknowledged. Um, the message of Revelation 4 is that despite God not receiving the glory and honour and thanks from his creatures on earth, despite this not being our, our reflex, it doesn't change the reality that God is on his throne. God is on his throne. 
Um, and as we sit with Revelation 4, um, I think here we can find you know, some of the courage uh, just to have a go whenever we get the opportunity at work, at play, in front of family and friends, just to, to acknowledge and give thanks to God, uh, to go public, to actually come out. But also, I think, helps us to understand uh, what's at the heart of John's weeping in chapter 5, which is where we turn now, um, where he sees the Lamb who alone is qualified and worthy of worship. He sees the Lamb. Um, the first thing we read here in chapter 5 is that in the right hand of God on his throne is a scroll, uh, God's right hand, which, of course, and on the scroll, written front and back, there's no more room to write anything, uh, is God's history. Uh, it's the history of the universe. Um, that it's full up, that God's already filled it up front and back means that it's his history. Uh, there's nothing for us to add or write. We can't actually change it. Uh, that it's bound, it's got seven seals. Uh, it means, uh, again, uh, that it's God's history and his to fulfill. His to fulfill. Um, history is not random, but purposeful and ordered. Uh, as some religions teach, history is not circular, but linear, going from one point to an end point. As I said, there's a problem, it's sealed. How on earth can we know what's here? John weeps uncontrollably because no one is found worthy. Uh, since the beginning of time, uh, the angel has been looking for one who is worthy, for one who is qualified to crack the seals, to, to fulfill God's plans and purposes here, uh, to make known what is here for his people. Imagine that. We've had some pretty amazing people men and women in history, haven't we? Um, no one worthy. No one worthy. No one qualified. No one able. And so John weeps. John weeps because he knows what's at stake here. He understands that without God's purposes being fulfilled and made known, uh, life really is meaningless. Uh, that humanity has no future. We have no way of being reconciled with our maker. We have no way of escaping God's judgment and hell. Now, sometimes I tune in uh, to the four o'clock uh, sort of talkback footy show, sports show on 5AA, and I'm a bit early sometimes, and so I catch the end of Jeremy Cordo. Does anyone listen to Jeremy? Hey? He's still going. It's amazing. And, but now, it's happened a few times, and I've come to realise that he closes off his program always saying the same thing, which is... Anyone know? Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And then, ironically, he plays a Johnny Cash song. And it's the same Johnny Cash song every day, five days a week. And I don't know if the guy realises, but Johnny Cash was a guy who had a go living life believing in himself. And he ended up almost dead. He ended up in a very bad place. And it was only the power of the gospel. It was only uh, as he put his faith and trust in Jesus that he, he found meaning in life and got himself sorted out again. But that is the message of the world, isn't it? The message of our education systems, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. If you've got a problem, just try harder, do it. You know, John weeps because he knows this is the world he lives in. And we're stuffed if that's all we've got. 
And so he's commanded to behold the lion who has conquered. Um, behold the lion. And heaven commands John to stop weeping. Stop weeping. So he's beheld God on his throne. John's now to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who was conquered, who alone qualifies to open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, and of course, he's talking about Jesus. So with the arrival of Jesus, the time for weeping has stopped. He's commanded, weep no more. Um, and Jesus Christ is, of course, the Lion of Judah. Uh, it's re referencing a promise that God made way back in chapter 49 of Genesis. This is thousands of years before Jesus arrived. Uh, one who is the root of David, referring to a promise that God made to King David through the prophet Nathan a thousand years before Jesus. You can read about that in, um, uh, in Samuel. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And Jesus Christ is this promised king in all our human story. Uh, the only one who will ever qualify to open the scroll is Jesus. It's Jesus. So it's not like, okay, well, he's turned up now, oh, but you wait, someone else is coming. No, 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 this is it. Only Jesus qualifies. But of course, instead of a lion, John sees a lamb. A lamb standing as though slain. Uh, most likely referring back to Exodus 12, of course. Uh, that's when you've got the Passover night, God's angel of death passing over all of Egypt. Every firstborn animal and every firstborn in, in a household dies that night, except the firstborn uh, in households of Israel, because God has commanded them through Moses um, to prepare and to slaughter an unblemished lamb, uh, to take some of that blood uh, and to mark their doorposts outside their house. And that uh, wherever there was blood on the doorpost from this slaughtered lamb, the angel of death, the angel of judgment, passed over that household. Uh, and so God's judgment wasn't visited on that family. And through that, God saved out uh, you know, over a million Israelites out of Egypt on that Passover night. And that's why every year Israel were commanded, you know, if, if you only celebrated one festival, the Passover festival was the most important. They were commanded, again, once a year to prepare a lamb with bitter herbs to slaughter it uh, and to remember that Passover night. Why? Because it was a pattern. It's a pattern of how God saves. It was a pattern to remind them continually how serious their sin is. So serious is our sin before a holy God. It takes the blood, the death of, uh, of an animal uh, to, to bring God's forgiveness. And you just think about anywhere in life, in a hospital or anywhere, wherever blood's involved, it's usually pretty serious, isn't it? You know, we're talking matters of life and death. Um, and as sin, it's serious. Uh, but of course, it was a pattern pointing uh, to God's better lamb, the lamb of God, the son of God, who would come and take away the sin of the world. Uh, as we're told repeatedly in the Bible, the blood of goats and lambs and bulls um, doesn't turn away God's anger. It doesn't actually at all bring forgiveness. It was all pointing to that one event in history when God the sinless son would die for sinful humanity. And at that point in history, ever, every sin ever committed 
by faithful Old Testament Jews and every sin committed by people after that. That's the place of forgiveness. That's the place of atonement. And that's why John sees a lamb. By Jesus' blood shed on that cross, the debt human beings owe God, a favour, love and honour God. That's that chance of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of being forgiven for those who will put their trust in Jesus. The seven horns that John sees signify Christ with all his power and authority of God uh, to accomplish God's purposes, to unlock the scroll, to bring history to its fulfilment. The seven spirits of God, again, are referring to the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold fullness that we see in Zechariah 3 and 4. Jesus alone is the one who is worthy to mediate God's plans. And it explains why John sees every living creature in heaven. They've changed their song between chapters 4 and 5. They're no longer singing about God the Creator. They're singing about God, the Lamb of God, the Saviour, the Redeemer. And so since Jesus' cross, um, every creature in heaven has been singing a new song, a salvation song. And so they sang this song together in verse 9. Have we got this up there, Mandy? We have. Let's have a look. So again, how about we say this together? I've just added a little bit um, at the end. That's not a part of scripture in the brackets, okay? But uh, I think that's the point. Let's say this together. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise from me. From me. And it is personal. The new song that they sing, of course, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Now, you notice under this dot point in your leaflet, there's all these references from the book of Isaiah. I've put them there for you to be able to look up later to see that this new song was always a promise song. That God promised because of the work of his servant, um, his suffering servant, uh, that people from every tribe, nation and language would sing a new song and they would worship God. There'd be a new unity. Now, we haven't heard this before. Of course, one of the ways you can use these blue cards is to, is to give me great sermon illustrations, which Michael Leonard did last week. So... Um, I don't want to plagiarise, so this is, this is Michael's illustration for this verse right here, okay? How's that? He's reading ahead, thinking about the text, um, and uh, I'm just, I'm just going to read it out because it's just a cracker. Um, Revelation 5.9, every tongue, tribe and nation. We've just had the Olympics in Rio, the greatest spectacle on earth, which seeks to gather people from every tongue uh, and nation to celebrate unity in sport. But of course, it is an ultimately shallow unity. There are all sorts of tensions. And we saw it played out. Commercialism, money, politics. But of course, God's vision is much grander. So much grander. That's a great illustration, isn't it? I forgot we were in Olympic years. Thanks, mate, because that's what happens when you go on holiday. But um, we do. It's, it's an attempt, you know, to sort of this superficial unity under five rings. Uh, and you know the best that we've got and of course not even everyone qualifies you've got to be pretty good to qualify to go to the Olympics or you pay a lot of money to go as a spectator Um, verse 10 verse 10 what do we read 
You have made them to be a kingdom and, and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That is the beautiful thing about Christianity is uh, God qualifies us. God qualifies us. Um, and he does it in the work of his son. All we need to do is tell Jesus that we want to join in with heaven's chorus. We want to begin to worship him as our God and as our saviour. And so whether we're a suffering saint, you know, we're having a tough time at work or at school or at uni, um, where you're trying to, you know, be a Christian, but you're sort of being slammed a bit. I caught up with a, an old friend recently. He's a, he's a vet. He's now working full-time at Flinders Uni, um, making sure that all of the research going on there that uses animals is ethical. Uh, and he said he's quite often, when they find out he's a Christian, they quite often they have a go at him. He says, how can you be a scientist and a Christian? You know, all this sort of stuff. But he loves it because um, he said it makes perfect sense. And so he's just continually sharing why he thinks, you know, it's, it's the rational. It's the only rational and right thing any scientist could do is they understand, you know, the order uh, and our ability to do science in the first place. Now, you could be like that. Uh, where, you know, you're under the pump a bit after being a Christian at work. Uh, you may be here this morning and you're struggling with, with certain sins. Um, they're just festering, you know, you've just sort of not try not to think about them, um, where, you know, some things are going well as a Christian, but other things are just in the too hard basket for you to sort of not fit in with the crowd, not succumb to peer group pressure because you don't want to stand out too much. Again, here is the courage in these chapters. Here is the courage as we look at the Lamb. Uh, look at this God on his throne. Uh, look at what it cost the lamb uh, for us to be forgiven, for, for you to be bought by his blood and to be made a person of Christ's kingdom. Or maybe, um, you know, you're a serving saint, as I mentioned at the start. Um, been a Christian for a while. You've been part of maybe a little church like this since the start, uh, serving your heart out week in, week out. Um, you know, your tank's running on empty. Um, how can I keep going? Well, I think we come and sit in a place like this and see Jesus clearly afresh, continually, um, for us to be re-energised, revitalised, renewed continually uh, in the abounding love of God and the grace of the gospel here for you and I. How worthy is this lamb? As we finish off, I just want to sum up to make sure, I think there's, just, there's two realities here on view. Um, as we think about you know, Christ's first coming uh, and then Christ's second coming, which is we between those two comings. Uh, history will come to its end. Uh, new heavens, new earth, when Christ comes again. Uh, there's two realities we've just got to keep always in the forefront of our mind. God is on his throne. God is on his throne. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's ruling. And God is on his throne saving through the Lamb. Saving through the Lamb. Everything that God is doing, he's bringing planning to bring under the lordship of jesus christ the lordship of jesus christ uh, and so what it means for us is that uh, we are a, a people of the cross uh, that we have, we have only one song to sing salvation song that's it um, anything that diverts or dis or distracts us from being a people of the cross a people of the lamb i think it, it will only dilute our faith it will dry up um, and will weaken our witness. Uh, and I think here is the, the secret uh, to continuing well, to keep taking up this cross, the cross where Jesus already has the victory, 
we're taking up a cross every day where Jesus has already won, already won. But that is the pattern to life and glory with God. And of course, a day is coming when this will become reality. I love it because, you know, every time you read the Bible, you're always discovering new things. So this week for me, I hadn't quite appreciated um, the growing number of creatures that get wrapped up in worshipping God and the Lamb at the end of chapter 5. So we're, just, we're going to finish off with this uh, and as we think about what it might look like in the day-to-day. So in, in chapter 5, verses 8 and 10, we see there's four creatures and 24 elders in heaven worshipping the Lamb. And then in verse 11, we see there's four creatures and there's 24 elders and now there's thousands and thousands of angels who are worshipping the Lamb, but still only in heaven. Every creature in heaven worshipping the Lamb. But then when you get to the very end of chapter 12, what do we see? Verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And they all fell down and worshipped. That is, that's where history is heading. Um, Whether every creature is there giving honour and acknowledging Jesus as Lord is doing it uh, because they're forced to or doing it willingly because they became a Christian while they were still alive. That's where all history is heading. We can be sure that God is in control and that this is where all history is heading and we are wrapped up in this already as people of the Lamb, people of the King. God is sovereign, God is saving. What might it look and sound like each day as we live humbly and prayerfully and sensitive to these two realities about God? What does it sort of look like? Well, I had an unexpected experience, and it'd be fair to say I was corrected. Maybe I think I was even rebuked. Um, uh, I'd spent months planning our trip, our driving trip. Two days into it, the wheels had already fallen off, not quite literally, but almost. Um, I had two days planned in Alice Springs, ended up being there for five nights, six days, um, frustrated. And in fixing up the problem, uh, which turned out to be very minor in the car, I got my only pair of shorts really grubby, really grubby. I trashed them, greased, all the rest of it. So I'm wondering, and I find myself in Todd Mall, in the Todd Mall um, shopping centre at the end. What's it called? You know, the one down the end? Mike and Jess lived up in Alice for three years anyway. In there is a Just Jeans. It's quarter to five. I'm racing in there to sort of get this pair of shorts and I'm trying them on and um, I, there's a young lass in there and, and I don't know her name and started talking. She's from Su- Sudan. So she came out as a refugee with her family from Sudan years previously. Family's in Melbourne. She's moved up to, uh, to Alice Springs because she's a bit lost and looking for life. And here I am just trying on these shorts, you know, what do you think? And, and she just blurted and said, oh, I, as I, I, I sort of got in the knack of asking people, you know, how's your day? You know, just as a way of having a conversation with people. And she goes, oh, I don't know, I've just, I've just, I'm lost. I don't know what life's all about. I've lost my identity and, you know, and she just blurts out all this stuff at sort of 10 to 5. I'm in there trying to buy a pair of shorts. I'm thinking, oh, right, really? So, um. But I ended up having this quite amazing conversation about Jesus. It so happens because we were in Alice early, we'd gone to the Baptist church up there, which turned out to be a pretty good church. And we talked, recommended she went there. Um, But then I was convicted because I had my console full of John's Gospels that I was hoping to give some away. And I thought, I really want to 
come back and talk to her and give her a gospel. I came back a few times over the next few days. She wasn't there. Uh, and finally, um, after I got st- we got stuck again and delayed, I went back and she was on, gave her a gospel, uh, talked to some more and left. But it just got me thinking that um, just how almost arrogant I'd been uh, and that, that, you know, yeah, I was travelling, I was on holiday, uh, but it didn't change the fact that God is sovereign, he's on his throne. And God is saving and he wants to use us wherever we go. He wants to use us, doesn't he, wherever we go, to be his witnesses. And so we've got to be continually humbling ourselves under God's sovereign purposes of grace, I think. Um, I don't know the name of this 22-year-old lass from Sudan, um, but I thought uh, with that story, I suspect we've all got our um, stories of, of, uh, of God's sovereign grace to share, um, those sort of times where we've sort of found ourselves as an opportunity to talk about over morning tea. But I thought I'd finish praying for us and praying for this young Sudanese lass that I don't know her name, but praying that she'll be among, among the saints, among the tribes and the languages and the nations uh, on that day, worshipping the Lamb with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks uh, so much that you are sovereign, you're on your throne, uh, that your purposes, your rule is irrevocable. Uh, that gives us great comfort and security uh, to live courageous lives for you. But Father, we're, we're, we're challenged to live compassionate lives as well of service and sacrifice with great vigour because of the Lamb, uh, Jesus the Lamb who was slain for our sin. Father, I pray that you would just keep renewing and refreshing us every day in the love of the cross. Help us to be a people of the cross who grow more and more in our love for you and all that you've done for us. And that might show itself in a greater vigour of service, a greater courage of witness. And I I do pray for this young Sudanese lass. I just pray that she's saved, she's read John's gospel, she's attending church. I I just pray that, uh, Lord, she is already among those who are worshipping and praising Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Keep us prayerful and sensitive and incredibly humble day day by day as we look for those opportunities of sovereign grace, uh, knowing that you go before us and help us to be faithful and obedient uh, as we live to serve Jesus and to make him known. Amen.